So I'm sure you've given this some thought. What do you think heaven will be like? As you picture heaven, what comes to your mind? What fills your imagination? For some of you, this is a more personal question because you have a loved one who is now there and it has occupied your thoughts, your imagination, thinking about what they're doing in this moment and what existence, what life is like for them beyond this life. So what do you think? What will heaven be like? I like the answer that, that we just saw on the screen here a little bit ago. Um, they asked a girl, what do you think heaven is like? And do you remember her answer? She said, well, I don't know. I've never been there. So the best we can do is we can think of heaven in earthly terms. Like, what do you think will be there? Well, there's going to be gold. There's going to be trees. There's going to be angels with harps. How do, you, how, do you, how do you picture it? And it's kind of been fun for me throughout the years because, you know, at various funerals um, where we celebrate people's lives and also celebrate what God has done for them, now giving them victory over life, it's kind of fun just to hear, you know, kind of the not serious talk, but what do you think they're doing right now? What do you think heaven is like? And here are some of the answers that I've heard over the years. And I, I, I haven't been keeping a journal of this. These are just some of the things that come to my mind. What, what do you think your loved one is doing? What's heaven like? Well, obviously in heaven, there's going to be fishing because man, he, he loved to fish. He was fishing all the time. He wished he could fish all the time. And so right now, I believe Uncle William is up in heaven. He's just fishing, fishing, fishing. That's, that's what heaven's about. Um, I've heard other people say, well, what do you think heaven is like? Or what do you think your loved one is doing? And they'll say, well, I th they're golfing. Couldn't keep them off the golf course. Definitely, they're golfing up there right now. And just my personal opinion, I believe that golfing is part of the afterlife, just not the heaven part. <laughs> what, an, what a horrible game. Just... <laughs> Unless some, by some miracle, God can fix my slice. But, but some people say, well, that must be what heaven is, is all about because that's what I love. And here's another common one that I hear. Like when you have a grandma or a great-grandmother or someone who just really loved her family, what do you often picture? Well, she's up in heaven right now. She's an angel just watching over us. She's on angel duty, you know, kind of just keeping track of us and making sure that we're okay because that's what was most important to her. And if you go long enough, you know, you'll begin to see a heaven that's very crowded with a lot of different things and different viewpoints on what really we want to have up there. But here's our, here's our problem with trying to picture heaven and figure heaven out. We can't go there and take a picture or take a video and then bring it back and show everyone what it's really like. You can't just visit heaven to get a feel for what it's like. We have to think of the unknown in terms of what we do know. We know what this life is like. We know the things that we enjoy. And so we take that and we try to translate it onto the higher level of what heaven must be like. In other words, we describe heaven in earthly terms which is the best that we can do. You know, when we talk about heaven, all we can ask is, what do you think heaven is like? Because we can't say for sure what it is. But God saw it important enough that he decided to give us a vision of it. A vivid picture that startles the imagination into being able to see what in other places he only describes with words. And the reason he does this 
isn't so that we can just sit back and daydream about, oh, wow, I can't, just, I can't wait until that day comes. But here's the thing. When, when God gives you a vision of heaven, it's because it has an impact on your life right now. When God shows you the next life, it's because it has an impact on this life. And I've, I've heard, I don't know if this is a, a common saying out there, but Christians are of no earthly good because they're so heavenly minded. We're so focused on what's to come that we're not living in the reality of what's now. But the reason God shows you what's next is because it has a very real application for what's going on now. And just remember the context of Revelation. Today we're going to get into Revelation 21 where we're going to see a vision of heaven itself. And remember the original people this was written to. Christians in the first century who were undergoing tremendous persecution in, in our terms, they were on this long journey. Maybe they were in, you know, in our, I, I shared earlier how I, we drove to Colorado. Um, they're in the middle of Nebraska and they're wondering, where are we going? Is the destination worth it? Or should we just stop? Should we just turn around? Should we, can we just stay where we're at? Why push on? And God gave a vision of their future to show them it is worth it. The vision of heaven has a direct impact on what we do. And here's, here's, here, here's my big picture that we're going to look at today. The, the thought that's going to carry us through this vision in Revelation 21. Whereas, so we usually think of heaven in earthly terms, but today we're going to reverse that. Number one, the goal for today is to think of heaven, in, to think of earth in terms of heaven, to, to see this life in terms of what's going to happen in the next life. And we're going to be challenged in a few different ways as God gives this vision to take the idea of heaven, the reality of heaven, the hope of heaven, and allow it to sink into this life right now. And we're actually picking up exactly where we left off last time. Last week in part five of the series, Pastor Ben worked through Judgment Day in Revelation chapter 20, and there was this vision of people standing before God and books being opened and lives being exposed before God. And there was this final judgment of all people. And it's then at the end of the world that John sees a new world take shape. Now, one thing that we're going to see today is a lot of times when we picture heaven, we think of this spiritual place where souls are with God even right now. But Revelation shows us what's beyond even that. This is after Judgment Day, after the end of this world, John sees something amazing. <clears throat> he says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And there's so much in here, but first of all, the quotation marks are because there are so many things in these verses that this isn't new. These are phrases that come out of Ezekiel and Isaiah and the Psalms. This has been around for centuries and centuries and centuries. And John is basically being shown a vision of what previously had just been words on a piece of paper. John says, you know what you read? I saw it. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And the difficulty for us is in Greek and Hebrew, there's only really one word for heaven and sky. Like those two things are synonymous. Like skies, blue skies, and also heaven are really the same word. And so sometimes in English, we have to differentiate like which, which, which uh, heaven, which sky is, is this referring to. 
And in the context of this section, heaven that's being referred to here is not the heaven where God is, but it's the sky above us. Like Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created the sky and everything beneath us. Now it's up and what's down. And John says, I saw a new sky. I don't know what was new about it. He doesn't give so, so many details that cued us that this was new, but he says, I saw a new heaven, a new sky. I saw a new earth. And in just a moment, he's going to share us what was really different about this new creation. But first of all, he shares something important. He says, I saw them new because the first one, the former one, had passed away. And sometimes in English, the word passed away means died or destroyed, but that's not what this word means. It's not like, it's not like the first heaven and earth, this creation died, but it's more that it kind of disappeared. Um, he's like, yeah, it was here. I, I don't know what happened to the other one. It was just, <clears throat> it's just sort of gone. It's just sort of out of here. Someone just <laughs> fixed the glitch, you know? Um, it wasn't supposed to be here, and, and finally, it was done away with. The Apostle Peter, as he writes his letters, he, he talks about it being this intense fire that, that um, melts everything away. But John just simply gets to the con conclusion. The earth, as we currently know it, was no more. There was a new heaven and a new earth, and then there was no longer any sea um, in Jewish customs, in Jewish culture, the sea was viewed as a, a place of evil and uncertainty and, and death. It, it was an obstacle to overcome, to get from point A to point B. And in Revelation, it's also pictured as a source of evil. And so as God is showing John this vision, John says, there, there is no more sea, which I think is really cool for John because he's stuck on an island prison, separated from the people he loves by the sea. And in his vision, God says, there is no more separation. There is no more evil. So we'll look more into this in just a little bit, but John just gives us this glimpse. There's a new heaven, a new sky. There's a new earth all around us. But there's something else that get, get, grabs his attention right away. In verse two, he says that I saw the, the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And as a kid, when I first read this, when I first heard this, I was like, well, that's cool. So like heaven is coming down to earth and God is gonna be with us. And that seems to be a cool picture. But whenever, remember one of the rules of you know, interpreting Revelation, always let the Bible interpret itself. Anytime you see Jerusalem mentioned or the holy city mentioned, this goes all the way back to Ezekiel and Isaiah. Uh, Jerusalem is always a reference for God's people, for, for you. Not just individually, but us as a group, us as a whole. And so John says, I'm seeing all of God's people who up to this point have spiritually been with God up in heaven, but now he's bringing them down to earth. And here's the part that really shocked John. It's how, it's how we looked as we came down. It's how this new Jerusalem looked as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. If you really want to be shocked this week by some of the stuff that's in the Bible, read Ezekiel chapter 16, where it uses this imagery to a whole different level. It talks about God being a faithful husband and his people being a very unfaithful wife. And it goes into vivid detail about how our sin comes across to the holy God and how it separates us and how he should get rid of us. But here we see something amazing. God's people 
as one city, beautifully prepared, perfectly pleasing to her groom, to God himself. And by the way, as, as you think about heaven, <laughs> what you probably think about, what I usually think about is, you know, big wide open area, somewhere in the outdoors, someplace with grass that's waist high and just gently flowing, beautiful blue sky, vastness, openness, because that's what peacefulness looks like in this world, right? What does God's version of peace and wholeness look like? A big, busy city. And that's a testimony to what God is able to do. Not just to create people who are perfectly holy in his sight through Jesus, but a people who are perfectly united through what God has done. This was really God's plan all along from that Garden of Eden to create a community of people who are perfect and holy and perfectly united. But then, but then the, the competition of sin set in. So what we see here is, is a, so much, there, there's so much in these words as John sees like what's after judgment day? What is the next life like? There is perfect unity and harmony among God's people, but there's also this perfection and holiness that we have in the face of God himself, all because of what Jesus did. And now here's, here's like the, the conclusion, like, okay, so what do we make of this? Why is it happening this way? Verse three answers that question. It says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place, literally God's tabernacle, we'll get to that in a minute, is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. And it's so unusual that it would use the word tabernacle as, as the, the noun and it's also in this uh, verb that he would dwell with them. The, the picture this would bring to minds is that this was God's dwelling place with his people ever since the Old Testament times. God's promise was that he would be with them in a real way through this tabernacle dwelling and that he would go with them in that way. But now it's saying that God is now somewhere else. His tabernacle, his dwelling is now with us. And this gets to two things. Number one, God's plan. And number two, your purpose. God's plan is to be united with his people. And your purpose is to be one with one another with him. On a bigger scale, here's something applicable for all of us right now. Well, when you look at Revelation 21 verses one through three, one of the things that stands out is it might challenge your current view of what heaven is like. There's one question like, what is heaven like right now where souls are with God, but God's ultimate plan is to bring you together, body and soul, together with all people and him as their God, to be with, to be among, to tabernacle with us. And so here's the bigger picture. Here's the bigger plan that God has in mind. And it really goes back to the way that you and I were created to be in this world. It's that number two, your body was made for heaven. It was made to be in a place that God himself would dwell. And this is so amazing for me because God as the creator, he has to exist independently of this time and matter and space that he created. And yet he's going to make this creation a suitable dwelling place for us to know him and see him and be with him. Your body and soul were made to dwell with God in heaven and God's plan will be complete when he makes this world new 
and brings you together to be with him there. That is the final goal. And in the meantime, we celebrate when people pass away and their soul goes to be with God in heaven. But one day, he will reunite body with soul at the resurrection where we, our bodies and souls will be perfectly made for heaven again. Now, the next part, the next part adds a layer to this as it talks about like what life will be like, not just in this spiritual holding pattern of heaven, but in the fullness of God's plan to raise body and soul together. And here's, it's, it's interesting how, how, John sees this because as he sees this vision, he's like, what can I compare this to? <laughs> it's, it's amazing to see all these people together, to see God dwelling with them. Like, what can I possibly use to, to compare this to? And so John, as he writes this down, he says, the best thing I can do is to tell you what it's not like. Here's how he continues. He says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Just think about this. What causes tears for you? Um, what causes tears? Death, mourning, separation, isolation, loneliness, crying, pain. Um, the, the crying that maybe doesn't even have a reason or a source. It's just sort of there. And the pain that causes the, the tears to well up. He says, those things will be wiped away because the old order of things has vanished. It's gone. John says, there's no way I can explain it. Like, God isn't fixing these things. He's not, like, making bad things better. He's, he's making everything new. It's just that there is no more of these things to, to cause what we've been experiencing. And as John gives a glimpse of this, he must be going through this like, how can I possibly explain this? And then what happens in verse five is something that hasn't happened since the very first chapter of Revelation. Up to this point, all that we've heard is these booming voices from the throne or from heaven or from angels kind of giving John this running narrative of what's going on and how to write this out. But this is the first time since Revelation chapter one that God himself speaks directly to John through this vision. It says, he who was seated on the throne, God himself said, I am making everything new. Then he said, I know this is hard to understand, John, because all you know in this life is the trouble and hardship and brokenness. I know that people aren't gonna believe it, but just do this, write this down because these words are trustworthy and true. I know that the Christians at the end of the first century were certainly wondering, like, what is going on in this world? Things are getting better, or things are getting worse, not better. And I'm sure some of them were thinking, oh, did we miss something? Like, did Jesus already come back and bring people to heaven, and are we just sort of the leftovers? Has the fulfillment happened in some spiritual way and, you know, we're healed on the inside, but that's, that's all? Like, what are we waiting for? And I'm, this is not something new. I mean, people in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before Jesus, were wondering the same thing. People in Isaiah's day were seeing the world get worse, not better. And they said, we thought God was going to make us a great kingdom, a great nation. Where did that go? And year after year, cycle after cycle, 
people who longed to see God would wonder where he was. And in this one verse, God answers why that is the case. The ultimate plan that God has for this world and this life is not to make things better. If that were the case, Jesus would have stayed on this earth a lot longer than 33 years. Rather, God's plan, God's goal, was to make things new. His plan was not to make this world better. It's to make the world new. And this is important for us to realize, first of all, how we see the world and navigate it, because this, this helps us to see why there are brokenness and why there are evils that still continue and persist despite our best prayers and our best efforts. God isn't going to make this world better. One day he's going to make it all new. And that's the only way to cure this. And some might say, well, what about that promise back at the flood? Like, didn't he promise he would never destroy the world again? Well, he's not going to destroy it. He's going to make it new. He's going to restore it in a way that no flood, no destruction ever could make possible. And this is also important because as you think about your place in this world, Jesus says, you are the light of this world. You are the hope of this world. But that doesn't mean that our, promise, our, our goal is to make the world a better place. I believe it will be better as you reflect the love of Christ to the world around you. In many ways, it will become better, but you cannot fix this world. And it's not our calling to make this world better. Our goal is to make people see the inward, inner, inner renewal that God works that will pave the way for the external renewal that will happen to this entire creation. God's plan is not to make the world better, it's to make the world new. And one day, at the end of the world, that will happen. And then there's one final, one final encouragement that is tagged on to this section. And then, if you have time this week, read the rest of Revelation 21, because it goes on to explain what this heavenly Jerusalem looks like in all of its perfection and beauty, and it goes on to explain in chapter 22 what it means that God is dwelling with us. And there's a lot of cool imagery. But we'll just look at a few more verses here as it explains what this means for me and for you. In chapter, or verse 6, it, it continues to say, John, the, the, God says, John, it, it is done. It's finished. It's, it's completed. I know for you it looks like a work in progress and you're waiting to get to your destination. But I'm telling you it's done, and I can tell you that because I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. I see all things, and I'm telling you, I know where you're headed because I'm already there. Isn't that an amazing word of comfort for me and for you when we're going through uncertain times? I know you're worried about where you're headed, but I know because I'm already there. I'm the beginning and the end, and here's the promise. To those who are thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Come to me, you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Such a beautiful picture of knowing that even in the journey, even in the journey, God is with you, and he knows the destination. He says, don't worry. I know where you're going. I'm already there. And then verse seven, to those who are victorious, those who are victorious will inherit all of this. It's done, it's ready. I will be their God and they will be my children. I know where you're going, I'm already there. There's hope. 
And as you think about, especially those Christians in the first century who were undergoing that intense persecution, you have to, you can only imagine what this meant for them. God's already there. He knows where you're going. And, and I think this is an amazing promise for us today too, as we in our various lives go through the things we're going through. And given the way the last couple of years have gone, it's very good to remember that we have a God who is the Alpha and the Omega. He's here with us, but he's already at our destination too. And I so wish, selfishly, that it would have ended with verse 7. You know, how um, every week, you know, Ben and I, we have to decide where to cap the sermon because we can't just keep preaching the entire Bible. We have to stop at some point. I know you'd, you'd love us to keep going, but we have to stop at some point. And I, I thought for a while about stopping at verse 7, but I really couldn't because there's this connective junction that combines verse 7 with verse 8. You see, verse 8 starts with this. And I really wish it wasn't there, but as I looked into it more, I'm so glad it is. Here's how verse 8 goes. But the cowardly, cowardly means you're full of fear, you're running from nothing, you're cowardly. The unbelieving, the Greek word can also just mean lack of faith or faithless or unfaithful. The vile, vile means that there's just something disgusting, that it, it just doesn't feel right to be in the presence of someone. The murderers, we get that. But Jesus also amplified it to apply to hatred and just hatred in someone's heart. The sexually immoral, and again, Jesus highlighted this, not to just be the outward action, but the inner desires. Those who practice magic arts, in Greek it's just one word, sorcerers. It applies to people who try to get things that God doesn't want them to have by seeking an alternate source. The idolaters which on a general broad level simply means your priorities in life are off. And then it mentions liars, which, you know, we could sometimes justify certain lies, but God doesn't leave that out for you. He says, all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death, end quote. And I thought, can I just end at verse 7? But there's something important here. The reason this is in here is because there were some Christians in the first century whose lives needed to change. There were some people in the first century who, as you look at this list, there were some things that struck them. Like, that's me. Or, you know, on my current trajectory, that's where I'm headed. As God showed them a picture of what heaven is like, the reason he shared that with them is because it applied to their lives right now. You're in the middle of Nebraska. You're in the middle of the journey. Don't stop. The caution was not so much, I've got heaven ready, don't mess up. The encouragement was, it's already there. Don't miss out. So here's my application for you as you look at this list and there's other lists in the Bible too. Where are you at? Would you confidently say that you're at the beginning of verse seven, you're the victorious? Or would you say that you're more in the second half here in verse eight? Is there something there that's catching your attention today? 
See, the reason why this list is here and the reason why I'm so glad that verse eight is here is because it evokes from us our attention to, to certain things that require our attention in the middle of our journeys. And truth be told, at any given time, we can look at some of the things on this list and other lists in the Bible and we can say, yeah, that, maybe that's, that's where I'm at right now or I'm feeling guilty about that or yeah, I can see how my trajectory is heading me in this direction and it can be a wake-up call. It can be a wake-up call. If we're all honest, if we're all honest, we have to look at lists like this and say, you know what, I'm more, I'm more described by this than I am by victorious. And if that's true of you today, then God's word has done its work. Throughout the Bible, we see different warnings just like this. Um, Paul was really good at this in his letters and in his writing. Several places he would go on this list of you know, people who are excluded from the kingdom of God who will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And he, he would warn people about this, not because he didn't love them, not because he was judging them, but because he said, I don't want you to miss out on what's ahead. There was one part in 1 Corinthians 6 where Paul did this and he was talking about the immoral people and the evil people and the liars and the sexually immoral and he just went through this big long list. He's like, you know, you know that these people won't make it to heaven, right? It's just like John in this vision, he's seeing God say this, you know these people won't be in my heaven, right? <laughs> and then Paul gives us the, the good news. To be victorious is not what you think. It doesn't mean that you have to work to become a better person. God's goal in this is not to make you a better person. He makes you a new person. Here's how Paul put it. He said, this is what some of you were. You know, all those things that were listed. This is what some of you were. But you were made new. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were declared not guilty. You've, the, the verdict has already been declared. You are justified because of Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. This has already happened. It is done. You are made new. And that's one of the big things that you can take away from places like Revelation 21. The reason God gives us a vision of heaven is not so that we sit back and daydream about, oh, how great it'll be someday, but because as we think about the day he makes everything new, it's a continual reminder to let him make us new internally, an inner renewal as we think about what he wants to change in us. So here's my closing application, my closing question or thought for you as you take away some, some ideas from Revelation chapter 21. And it's, it's kind of a what if. Like what if you could visit heaven for a minute? And not just the spiritual heaven where people get to be with God, which is amazing in and of itself, but what if you could visit the vision that John himself is showing you? You could visit for a minute what it's like to be in a new heaven and a new earth where there is no more death or mourning or sorrow or pain, where God himself is with us and it's this new way of life. What if you could visit that and feel the wholeness and the peace, the joy that you as a human were designed to experience? What if you could just feel fully human for one minute? What would that change about your life today? Or here's how I put it for number four. What in your life would change forever if you could visit heaven for one minute? 
what priorities would be realigned? What fear have you been acting on that would instantly dissolve? What anxiety have you been ruminating on that instantly would pass away? As you picture one minute standing in God's fulfillment of heaven, how would that change your life forever? And here's the good news. God allows you to visit that as often as you like. Reading places like Revelation 21 and 22, you get to stand in heaven and see in a vision a glimpse of what it will be like in the next life. So that's my encouragement for you this week. Stand in heaven for a minute, for more. And ask yourself the question, how should the reality of my eternity change the life or the journey that I'm on right now? And here's another encouragement, maybe sometime this week. What we'll close with is some words from Psalm 16. It's a, it's a great psalm um, that reveals itself in some ways in Revelation. And it simply gets to the heart of what God wants you to take away. Here's what Psalm 16 says. It says, therefore, my heart is glad. My tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. Nor, this is about Jesus, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. Because he lives, we know that we also will live. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Read that psalm this week. Take a minute to stand in heaven and see how God will change your life forever. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, the journey of this life can have a lot of uncertainties and unexpected things that pop up. A lot of joys, a lot of good stuff too. And the good and the bad, they, they can each have their own way of diverting us and our attention from what is truly ahead of us. And so I thank you for places like Revelation 21, where you shock our imagination with this vision of the next life. There's nothing we can compare it to. All, all we can see is what will not be there. Death, mourning, crying, pain. And all we can see is what will be there, which is you. Thank you for this vision. And I, I pray that as we contemplate the certainty of the hope we have in heaven, that it will guide and, and shape our lives during this journey. In Jesus' name, amen.